good, Rocky Peak. How are we doing today? It is good to be with you, whether you're joining us on campus, inside the worship center, out on the patio, or you're joining us online, wherever you are, and especially if you're here for the very first time, welcome to Rocky Peak. If you and I have not had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dre. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and we're going to go into that time of teaching. But before we do, I got to address one thing. Part of my job as a preacher and pastor is to stand and declare truth. And sometimes truth is uncomfortable, but it can be prophetic. It can be the Lord speaking to our hearts. And so Rocky Peak, in that vein, today, the San Francisco 49ers are going to beat the Los Angeles Rams and move on and move on. I just want to be clear. I've been booed at every service, and I feed off your booze. I feed off your booze. And regardless, come to encounter, and regardless of what happens, I'm going to be crying. It just depends on, is it tears of joy or is it tears of sadness? Now that I've alienated a good number of you that seem to forget that you're 0-2 against us so far this season. Uh, we're going to go into our time of teaching. Inside of your program, there is a green and white message note sheet. As we like to say every week, that is a great tool to help you follow along with this time of teaching. It's also a great tool. I love to provide some blank white space in there for you to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is specifically prompting you to remember. I'm going to pray, and we're going to go into this time together. Jesus, I'm thankful for this community. I'm thankful for the fact that we can come and laugh together. I'm thankful for the, the fact that we can come and cry together. I'm thankful for the diversity in this community in every respect of the word. Even as I just stand up here and look around, I see people of various ages. I see high school students. I see young kids. I see multiple different backgrounds and different stories. I'm grateful for the difficulty of being a church community because it's difficulty that leads us to a deeper love and a deeper experience. And so Jesus, as we gather again, whether we're on campus or we're watching online, we come before you and we say something that we often say here at Rocky Peak, we don't need to ask you to speak because you already are. We as your church are committed to listen to what you have to say. As we open up your word, which is living and active, which is the breath of life, which is transformative, I pray the words of John the Baptist, I pray that as the speaker, as the communicator, that I would become much, much less this morning, that I would fall by the wayside, and I pray that you, King Jesus, would become much, much more. And it's in your name, King Jesus, that we all said, amen. So Rocky Peak, this weekend, we're going to be continuing the series we've been in for the last several weeks or so called Supernatural Discovering Your True Identity. And if you're here for the first time this weekend, really the heart or the vision behind this series is that when we look at Scripture, in particular when we look at the New Testament, we see that when a man or woman gives their lives to Jesus, when they commit to following the leadership of Jesus in their lives, something happens to them. And as Michael has been describing over these last couple of weeks, it's a change that is very deep. It's a change that is very profound and very powerful. In fact, there's no other way to describe it other than the word supernatural. 
And what we see is with this change, we receive from Jesus a brand new identity, an identity that comes with a new power, with a new perspective, with a new purpose, with a new enemy, with a new destiny. And so throughout this series, each week, we've been focusing on one specific aspect of this new identity and how it ties into this epic vision that God has for us. And so today, as we continue on in this series, what we're going to see is that this change of identity, this vision that God has for us is a vision that is far bigger than simply us as individuals, but it is a vision that completely transforms us collectively as well. What we see throughout the New Testament of the Bible is that when a man or woman gives their lives to Jesus, they are not only now a Christ follower, but they are now part of this new body of believers, this new family, as the New Testament is going to refer to it, called the church. And so we're going to be unpacking that in our time, but before we do, we need to stop and take a spiritual deep breath, so to speak. Because even if we haven't been in church a long time in our lives, we probably have heard this concept before, the church is family. And there are some of us here this weekend that that idea brings a lot of joy, and there are definitely many of us that that idea, that that word brings a lot of fear and anxiety and trepidation. Because for a lot of us, we've been impacted by our family of origins. We've been impacted by our previous experiences, whether in other churches or in this church. For some of us, this word, this concept, this idea of family is something that can be deeply, deeply painful. And if that's where you're coming from this week, and one of the beautiful things about the Word of God is that the Word of God is healing. The Word of God is restorative. And what God is going to do is we spend time in Scripture specifically talking about what does it mean that church is this new family, is whether we've been around church for a long time or a little, God is going to give us a more, a bigger, a deeper, and more powerful vision for what he does and what he means when he calls this beautiful mess that is the body of believers a new family. In fact, I love this quote there in your note by Russell Moore that our identity is found in Jesus. His story is now our story. His bloodline is now our bloodline. His inheritance is now our inheritance, and his family is now our family. If we are in Christ, we have a new father, a new ancestry, and a new household bustling with brothers and sisters. We have a church. And so in our time together, we're going to unpack more of what God means behind that vision. So there in your note sheet, you got a section titled One Household. you got your Bibles, open them up, got your apps, turn them on. We're going to be going to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be starting in verse 11. But before we do, let me give you a little bit of context as we're starting halfway through the chapter. So in the first half of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is writing about the individual transformation we experience when we come to Jesus. He uses words and phrases that before Jesus, we were objects of God's wrath. We were dead in our sins and our transgressions. But because of Jesus, we have now been saved. We have now been transformed. Again, what we've been talking about, we are now supernaturally given a new life, a new hope, a new purpose, and a new eternity. And for many of us, we would recognize that as what we call the gospel 
gospel message. And what I love about the gospel message is that it is bigger than us individually because the second half of this chapter we're going to be covering continues the gospel message that not only are we renewed individually, but we are now renewed collectively because of the gospel of Jesus. So have your pens ready, have the high life function ready because we are going to make it messy, Rocky Peak. Starting at verse 11, therefore, remember. Let me encourage you, underline or highlight that word, remember. We're actually going to come back to that later on in the message. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Now, let's stop and unpack those titles real quick. So Paul is writing this letter to Christ followers who were living in and around the ancient city of Ephesus. He was writing this letter primarily to what was called Gentile believers, meaning non-Jewish believers. And so these were common terms in the ancient world to signify Jews and non-Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised. And so as we continue, therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, which you underline or highlight the entirety of verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now we need to stop and unpack this. There is a lot going on in those verses. And that's, again, something that I value about Scripture. The Scripture is rich and dense. And so the truth is, we're not going to be able to unpack everything that these verses are teaching. We've got to stay kind of in a big aerial view. But let's understand some really profound things that he's saying. And so he's talking about one of the most significant divides of the ancient world, which is the divide between Jews and the divide between Gentiles. And the reason why this was such a significant divide is they were divided over some of the most passionate and heated issues, not just of the day, but of all of humanity. This divide between Jews and Gentiles was a racial divide. This divide was a social and cultural divide. This divide was a religious divide. And let's think about it. People are passionately divided over one of those items. And now we're adding all three into this powder cake. And this has been a divide that had been going on for years, decades, centuries. And in that, what built was enmity. What built was anger. What built was bitterness. What built was division. And as we're going to see, as Paul continues to write, that both parties were at fault. But the main thing I want you to grasp is that to everyone involved, to the world around them witnessing thing, this divide was insurmountable. And one thing that's really interesting about this is again, that title of circumcision. When we go back to the Old Testament, we see that God 
called the Jewish people to this covenant, to the symbol of circumcision, and there was beauty behind it. That as God is creating a new nation of people following after him, circumcision was a symbol of identity, that I am God and God's alone. Circumcision was an opportunity literally to show that I'm cutting off my old life, that I belong to Jesus the King. And what we see in the Old Testament was that God had called the Jewish nation beautifully to a season of separation, which was intended to prepare them to then go and reach all of God's creation. So there was an intentional separation that was meant to last for a season. But like what happens often with God's intent is that what began as God-led became man-led. That what began as God-led became a symbol, what was a symbol of humility, a symbol of dependence, a symbol of trust, became a symbol of pride, became a symbol of exclusion, became a symbol of division. And I wanna be very clear about one point, Rocky Peak. This is not a specific Jewish issue. This is being a person issue. That because of sin, we have this innate ability to take these wonderful things that God has called us to and to somehow turn them into statuses of pride and exclusion. And the reason why we really needed to dig into this is that while there are many of us that maybe can't relate to those titles, it's not necessarily something we hear in Chatsworth, California, people refer to as circumcised or uncircumcised. I don't think that would be socially acceptable. <laughs> but we can relate to the fact that we as people have created our own titles of division. We have done it through our politics and the titles that come with it. We've done it through issues of race. We've done it through issues of age and generations where we are deeply distrustful of those older or those younger than us. We've done it in seemingly good things and issues of worship and how to worship and styles. We've done it in issues of passions and gifts and callings. Rocky Peak, we even do it. Our church is located on the line of two area codes and we do it between the area codes. And so ultimately what we see is that this is a deeply relatable problem. We need to acknowledge, I need to acknowledge that because of what sin has done, we are naturally good at division. We are naturally good at creating boxes, at building enmity. And so the apostle is starting off our time by saying, but that has changed because of Jesus. And so throughout the New Testament, the death and resurrection of Jesus is a turning point, a cosmic turning point because the old way, the old rule, the old kingdom died at the cross. The cross crucified division and barriers and walls and instead the cross resurrected with life. We were dead before Jesus, now we have life. And so what Paul is telling us is Jesus has taken these natural enemies and through his resurrection he has built something new that is built on the foundation of life. And that leads me to your first fill in there in your note sheet is that new life is the foundation of the new family. New life is the foundation of the new family. If we truly wanna understand what it means to be family, we have to start there. 
every aspect of our new identity is built on the life that Jesus brings. And so that is our starting point. And there in your note sheet, I put what's been one of our guiding passages throughout the series, Colossians 3. You died and your life is now hidden with God, with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, pause and just appreciate the beauty of that. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. And so with that, we continue. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Would you underline or highlight that? Our peace. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Let's pause right there. Jesus has said, I have fulfilled the law. But what I want to do is I want to focus on this truth that Jesus is our peace. And one thing that we need to understand is that peace and life are synonymous and intertwined. One thing we need to understand is scripture is giving us a much bigger definition of what peace is. That peace is not what Jesus does, but peace is who Jesus is. It is his very character. In fact, if we go back to Christmas time, which seems like 10 years ago at this point, but if we just go back a month ago, one of the titles that we remember of Jesus at Christmas time comes out of Isaiah 9 that declares that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And so what we need is scripture gives us a much bigger view of what this means, that often we think of peace as just the cessation of hostility or the end of a trial. But when we go to this concept of shalom as introduced in the Old Testament, the peace of God is one of restoring our wholeness is one of restoring a people that have been broken. The peace of God is one of restoring our ability to live the life that God had originally intended us to live. And one of the key ways we experience wholeness and restoration is in our relationships. To say that Jesus the Christ is peace is that he has come to restore our relationship with God the Father, and he has come to restore our relationship with one another. And as we continue, verse 15, by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. Would you underline or highlight that? One new humanity out of the two thus making peace and in one body, would you underline and highlight that, in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Again, we saw that both were in need of reconciliation, of peace. By which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have Access, would you underline or highlight that? We both have access to the Father by one Spirit. And so again, we see the beauty of the power of Jesus is you have this significant divide, these warring groups, so to speak, 
And Jesus doesn't take what we would consider the easier route, which would have been restoring them and sending them back into what they know, restoring them and sending them back into their boxes, restoring them and keeping them separate because maybe that would be safer or more comfortable or easier to deal with. Instead, we see Jesus do what only the king can do is he takes these two warring groups and out of them because of his peace, he creates new life. And he creates a brand new identity, a brand new humanity that are all defined now by the love of Jesus. And what is so beautiful about this, what is so beautiful about this love that Jesus gives us was who initiated the change? Jesus did. Jesus entered into their mess. As he's entered into our mess, Jesus entered into their division, into their pride, into their infighting, into their anger, into their hatred, into their enmity, and Jesus took it upon himself. He crucified it, he conquered, and out of it comes new life. Jesus could have just sent them along their separate ways, but that would not have been good enough. He wants something more. And we continue. Verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Would you underline or highlight that? Members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, the most important stone that determined the shape and the structural integrity of the building. And so let's talk about the metaphor. The metaphor of household suddenly became deeply intimate, did it not? Because to be part of a household, especially in the Roman world, meant to have identity, meant to have belonging, meant to have protection, meant to have a level of value and worth. And there are many people in the Roman world that were excluded from that. Just as today in our world, there are many people that live and breathe each day feeling that they don't have identity, don't have value, don't have worth. And so what Jesus is saying, first of all, to us individually, if you are a Christ follower. And what that means is at some point in your life, you realized an experience that Jesus is real, that Jesus is who he claims to be, that Jesus is who forgives us of our sins, that Jesus transforms you from the inside out. If you have made the declaration that I put my life imperfectly at times under the leadership of King Jesus, then what Jesus is saying through the words of the Apostle Paul is that you are no longer alone. You are no longer an orphan. You have no longer been abandoned, which is what sin did to us. You are now part of a household. You are now part of a much bigger story that goes long beyond our building, that goes far beyond our nation, that goes far beyond our, wor our world, that goes all the way back to the saints we read about in scripture. You are now part of this family that has Jesus as its head. And one of the most important things is we see that family matters. And so Christ followers, we cannot, we cannot, we cannot separate our relationship with God from our relationship with one another. 
We cannot separate our relationship with God from our relationship from one another because again, to be a Christ follower, to bear the name of our risen King means that his priority is our priority. His value is our values. His love and passions are our love and passions. And what do we see? He deeply loves, he's passionate, he values family. And so as we go in verse 21, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together. Would you underline or highlight that? Built together, a beautiful reminder that we are not yet perfect, but we are in progress. We're being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And so again, as we see the bigger story of God unfold, that in the Old Testament, the dwelling of God where his very spirit lived was a physical location, whether it was the tabernacle, whether it was the temple in Jerusalem. And God wanted all to know that his presence was his people, but because of his people's sins, there was walls and barriers that all of us did not have access And as we see through the work of Jesus, again, through his death and resurrection, he has now restored that relationship. And so when the New Testament speaks of God's temple, when the New Testament speaks of where God now dwells, it says that his temple is the family. His temple is the church. His temple is us individually, and his temple is us together. And so Jesus is creating something new in what we call the church family. And as we learn what this means, as we learn what this requires, as we learn how to move forward with this family, we realize that Jesus is not asking us to move forward based on any conception of family we've known before but he's asking us to move forward into something bigger in which he continually reveals to us what he means to be part of this household. And that leads me to your second fill-in, is that new life redefines what it means to be family. New life redefines what it means to be family. New life not only redefines our experience of being part of a family, but new life redefines our role as part of this new family. And there underneath that from John 13, Jesus says, a new command I give you. Can we stop and rest on that word? Do you notice he doesn't say a new option or a new good idea if you could work it into your schedule? He speaks as the king. He speaks with authority. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And so what are we learning from John chapter 13 is that Jesus is inviting us to continue his work. Jesus is inviting us to continue to embrace the new life we have. The enemy and the forces of darkness 
They are teaching us. They are trying to train us. They are trying to get footholds in our heart so that we fight against family. Jesus is refocusing us and saying it's not about fighting against, it's fighting for. Rocky Peak, when we look at the New Testament, often a common metaphor that is used to describe what it is to be a Christ follower are military metaphors. The New Testament makes it very clear. We are in a fight. We are called to fight. But one of the things we need to make an incredible distinction is that the New Testament is calling us to fight in a way wholly different from how our world fights. Our world fights against. Our world fights with sin, with shame, with anger, with bitterness, with conditions. Jesus fights with love. Jesus fights with life. Jesus fights with restoration. And Jesus is training us to go out into a world that does not yet know him and to proclaim this beauty of life, to proclaim this beauty of love. But to do that, we need to learn how to fight in our house. We need to fight the right way, which is fighting for rather than against each other. Because we cannot ignore the fact that if Jesus fought for family, then as his believers, as his sons and daughters, we are called to do the same. And so Rocket Peak, it's time to fight. It's time to fight for the people in your family you get along with and cherish. It's time to fight for those people in life group you can't stand. (laughs) It's time to fight for the people that are like you in multiple ways. It's time to fight for the people that are completely different and opposed to you. It's time to fight for those that annoy and it's time to fight for those that deeply hurts. And not because this is easy, but this is our opportunity and our privilege because we are now part of a new family. Amen? And so as we leave this passage, as I do occasionally on behalf of us, I say, Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the conviction. Thank you for the hope. Amen. And so as we talk about what does that mean to fight for our family, what I want to do with the time we have left is there in your note sheet, We've got a section titled The Supernatural Family, and there are three truths that come out of this passage, but as well as come out of different parts of the New Testament that I think are important foundations for what it means, what our role is as part of this family. So as we go into that section of your note sheet, your first fill-in is this, that family requires a supernatural love. Family requires a supernatural love. And here's what I mean by this. We need to, to be family is to be part of something bigger than we are on our own. And to do family well means we need a love that we could not possibly produce on our own. We need a love that is not natural to us. We need a love that is not constrained by us. We need the love of Jesus to be our guide, to be our teacher, to be our experience. And I want to take you back to that first word I had you underline, which was the word remember. 
The Apostle Paul began our passage this weekend by saying, remember, it's a formerly and now contrast. Remember who you were before Jesus. Remember that you were dead. Remember that your relationships were broken. Remember that you had no hope. Remember who you were and remember how great the love the Father has given you through Jesus that has saved you, has transformed you, and is transforming you going forward. Forward because we cannot hope to do family without the love of God. See, often Rocky Peak, we are guilty of forgetting how loved we are. Often we are guilty that our focus becomes all of the things that divide us, all of the things that are ripping us apart, all of our anger, all of our bitterness, all of our tension points. And we need to ask ourselves, when was the last time you paused and just reflected on how deeply loved you are by Jesus, the risen King. When was the last time you paused to just receive that, to embrace that, to be overwhelmed by that? Because that is one of the most powerful tools we have in spiritual warfare because the enemy wants you to forget. The enemy wants you to forget how much Jesus loves you, that he loved you at your worst. He loved you at your darkest. He loved you when it was not deserved. He loved you when you wanted nothing to do with him. He entered into it and he loves you. And the enemy is a brilliant tactician. He knows that if he can get us to forget, that's when pride sets in. That's when we lose patience. That's when we lose compassion. That's when we stop fighting for and instead take up arms against our family. And when we pause regularly to remember how loved you are, we are experiencing a love that is supernatural and we are being filled by a love that is supernatural and the hope of family is that we would be living out of the overflow of a love that we can't find anywhere else but the presence of Jesus. I talked about how peace, how shalom is the restoration of relationships and what is the greatest gift we get from a restored relationship? Presence. The presence of Jesus the King in our lives is proof of his love for us. Our ability to be present in the lives of our family is proof of our love for them. And so we need a supernatural love to teach us to do what we can't do on our own. And hear me, that's a very intentional word is we need to be taught. This is something we learn to do because it's not natural and it's definitely not easy at times. And Jesus, you know, being Jesus is gonna teach us. But as he often does, he's going to teach us in ways that are beyond what makes sense, that are beyond the ways we'd have chosen because it will always lead to something greater. And one of the key tools, one of the best laboratories, you will, that Jesus will teach us to depend and to deepen and to show our love for one another is in the truth that family is hard. And that leads me to the second fill-in. Is difficulty is what deepens our love.
family is difficult. I don't need to convince you of that, do I? And you know why family is difficult? Because it involves people. People are difficult. If people weren't a factor, family would be amazing. <laughs> But the truth is, people are messy, people are broken, people are sinful, people are opinionated, people are gonna people. <laughs> And so when it comes to family, family is difficult because it involves us. But I want you to think back on your life. When you think back of your accomplishments, these seasons, these successes that you are the most proud of, I would bet that most of you would say that the things I'm most proud of have been the things that were the most difficult to achieve or maintain. In fact, there are many of you that if you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time, if you look back on your spiritual life, you would probably be able to point out that some of the most riches and the most profound seasons of growth were some of the times in which following, submitting, and obeying Jesus was the absolute hardest. Difficulty deepens our understanding of love. Difficulty deepens our experience of love. Difficulty strengthens and matures us in a way nothing else can. And so Jesus puts us in something that is difficult for our good because what you see throughout the New Testament of the Bible is that you see that God's vision for us is not to be a people that run from the difficult but embrace it because it is only through the difficult that we experience a beautiful spiritual maturity. And family is difficult for a lot of reasons. Again, I mentioned because of people, but often the root of so much of the difficulty is that this family is not one that we chose. We did not choose the people that are in our family. God did. And so as you look around this room, this is Jesus' fault. <laughs> And Jesus brought in people that are like us, and Jesus brought in people to this household that are really different than us. Jesus has brought people with some key differences. He's brought people into this household that are different personalities, that have different passions, different gifts, different callings, different hobbies. He's brought people that have different viewpoints. He's definitely brought people that have different opinions. And there's a beauty in that diversity. And again, there's a very real difficulty in learning to be family in that. Not only that, but Jesus brought people into this household that are imperfect. Have you noticed that? He brought people that are still sinning, incapable of sin. And one of the difficulties of that is that we are affected by the sin of our family. And so there are times in which the sin of our brothers and sisters affects us and hurts us in annoying ways. There are times in which the sin of our family affects us and hurts us in deeply, deeply painful ways. Jesus has brought people into our family that have significant needs. We are high maintenance. Jesus has brought people into our family that have a need for relational time, that require patience, that we need to develop or restore trust, that need forgiveness, that need a healing. But the reality is, One of the things that, most, that is most difficult about family 
is that it reveals the pride and the sin in our hearts. When we deal with family being difficult, often our temptation, our go-to is to run away, is to put distances, is to find a family that is easier, to find a community where they're more like us, where they get it, where we don't have these difficulties, where we don't have these problems. And what that does is that it reveals the sin in our hearts that we want life to be easy. We want God to be easy. And God wants more. God's vision is more. And so he has put us in this diverse group of beautiful weirdos to do the difficulty. You know, to illustrate this a little bit, one of my favorite authors, one of my heroes is a, is a pastor named Tim Keller. He's been a pastor for over 30 years in uh, New York City. And several years ago, he and his wife, Kathy, wrote an absolutely excellent book on marriage called The Meaning of Marriage. And they write something in particular that I think applies to us this weekend. He talked about that when, three, when you get married, almost immediately three things happen. One, you realize that you were a bigger sin, you're a bigger sinner than you had known before. The second thing you realize is that your spouse is a much bigger sinner than you had realized before. And the third thing that tends to happen is you determine that their sin is a bigger problem than your sin. And so that's the one you focus in on. And so again, often what happens in family is we are confronted by the sin of our brothers and sisters. And there is a time for conviction. There is a time for truth. Don't hear anything differently from me. But to be able to go in, to be able to do that, we need to confront the sin in our heart first. And often the sin in our heart is that our idol is ease. Family makes me uncomfortable because it reveals this idol in my life. It reveals that I spend an enormous amount of time, of effort, of resources to make my life easier. And me as a broken human being, when things get hard, I want to quit. But Jesus didn't. And Jesus empowers me empowers us to do what is seemingly impossible. You know, there's a beautiful example of this in in 1 Corinthians 13. Some of you know 1 Corinthians 13 as what's called the famous love chapter. If you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard it. As we're going into February, you're going to start to see it in a lot of Valentine's Day advertisements. And even at weddings, when I recite 1 Corinthians 13, one of the things that I add is there's a beautiful, deep context of 1 Corinthians 13. The 1 Corinthians 13 was not written to weddings or to marriages or to any type of dating relationship. 1 Corinthians 13 was written to instruct, to correct, to rebuke, and to envision a family that was at war. In the very first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul steps into a war zone. This church, this family had become deeply fractured and broken. And there were many fractures, but one of their key fractures is they were fighting over who the best human leader to follow was. 
Who was the smartest? Whose vision was the best? And that is amazingly relatable to us in a lot of ways, right? And I think one of the most interesting things about it is the leaders themselves were not the people doing this. It was the people that were distorting what they were trying to do. And so you walk into the church at Corinth and they had these four warring tribes. You had one tribe that said, we follow Paul, the apostle that helped start this church, either get on board or get out. And then you had another tribe that said, we follow Apollos. He is this charismatic young teacher. The way he preaches is captivating. So get on board or get out. And then you had another team that said, hey, we follow Cephas, Peter. He was one of the original disciples. He walked with Jesus. So get on board or get out. And then you had the ones that probably really thought they were spiritual because they're like, we follow Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, we hate you. And Paul steps into this and he writes, prompted by the Spirit, these words. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. And what the apostle was reminding them, what he's reminding us of, first and foremost, this is how Jesus loves us. And this is how Jesus empowers us to love so what the apostle does not do is he does not tell them, go and start four churches. Instead, what he says is, remember our foundation and put down your arms and fight for one another. And this is gonna be hard and difficulty and there's gonna be failure and tension, but Jesus is with us. What was passionate to Jesus is what becomes passionate to us. And speaking of the church at Corinth, I love this quote there in your note sheet. It's a lengthy quote, but I think it's really relevant to us. And it says that the Apostle Paul could have very easily written off this community. Let me add some subtext. I'm sure he was tempted to many times because he wrote two letters to them. He could have very easily thrown in the towel. Why didn't Paul throw in the towel on the New Testament church? For the same reason Jesus didn't. Church is family in spite of their manifold flaws, sins, inconsistencies, hypocrisies, and weaknesses, he is hopeful for them. Not because they are stellar people, but because Jesus is a stellar savior. So instead of giving up on them, he doubles down on his involvement with them. Instead of shunning or shaming them, he speaks to them as his beloved brothers, sisters, sons, and daughters in the faith. He names them not according to their failures, but according to their redemptive status, using words like saints and sanctified. He thanks God always for them and reminds them that Jesus will sustain them until the end. Paul thinks about the church in the same way that Jesus does. He thinks about the church as family. Family is not our obligation. 
It is our honor. It is our privilege. It is our opportunity to experience a depth of the supernatural love of Jesus that we would not experience anywhere else. This beautiful group of imperfect misfits is our home. And we have the opportunity to fight for our house, to fight for our home. Rocky Peak, let me give you this image often, and again, living in California, a state with often this struck with wildfires in our own area as well as above the state, you often see these pictures in the news of people with their hoses and their buckets who are not gonna leave but who are gonna fight for their family. That's an image I get when it comes to the church, when it comes to this family is we have not been called to run, we have not been called to flee, we've been called to enter into the fire, so to speak, and fight for our family. And so as we think about it, it is difficult. There are times when this is going to be one of the most difficult things you have ever been called to do, but it will lead you to one of the most richest experience of God's love. And it leads me to the last villain, that a unified family reveals a real Messiah. A unified family reveals a real Messiah. Rocky Pleak, what does it proclaim about Jesus to a world that doesn't yet believe? What does it teach them about Jesus when his household is at war with one another? When they forget his clear commands, when they abandon them for various reasons. But then let's look at the opportunity. What does it proclaim to a world that does not yet know Jesus to be a community, to be a household of people that have no business being under the same roof, to be a people that are imperfect, that deal with difficulties, that feel with tensions and deal with hardships, but to be a people that are choosing to be committed, that are choosing to deal with them under the love and leading of Jesus. What does it teach an unbelieving world to be a people that are not perfect, but a people that are united. It is showing them that Jesus can do what no one else can. And so we have a beautiful opportunity because our world is under the grip of the enemy. Our world is preaching moment by moment division, anger, and hatred. And we have the opportunity to walk out as a family, arm in arm, as imperfect as we are, to say, just as Jesus has done for us, he does for you. Come home and be part of this household. This is our opportunity. This is our privilege as the family of Jesus, the risen King. And so as I invite the worship team to come on out, as we get ready to close our service, I want to invite you as we go into this time of worship to reflect on a simple but a deeply profound question. As we unpack what it means to be the church family, Jesus is inviting us to be part of something bigger. And so the question I want you to reflect on is how is Jesus inviting you to love your family? 
And this is a question and a dialogue that's going to go far beyond these moments right before worship. And I hope that this would be the catalyst, the beginning of a beautiful dialogue. Often, Jesus has convicted my heart that when I talk to Jesus about my family, it's usually to pray against them. And I'm realizing the supernatural transformation that's coming from Jesus. Show me how to love these weirdos better. Show me how to show your love. And so I want to invite you to boldly ask that question in this moment. And as we leave this place, Jesus, how are you inviting me to love my family? And for some of you, Jesus is going to lead you simply to get to know your family to get to outside of what you know, to get outside of the people that are safe, to maybe get involved and serve or to be involved and just greet and meet and learn stories. For some of you, the invitation of Jesus is gonna be to have a difficult conversation, one that requires grace and hope and mercy and Jesus himself. There's gonna be a lot of ways that Jesus is gonna answer this, but hear me, Jesus is going to answer this and his heart and his vision is always for us to experience how loved we are and how that empowers us to love one another. And so again, Rocky Peak, I ask, how is Jesus inviting you to love your family? Let's pray. Jesus, you loved us first. Jesus, you love us first. Jesus, you stepped into sin and darkness. You stepped into our lives when we hadn't earned it, when we didn't deserve it. And you called life out of the darkness. We all had our Lazarus come out moment because of you. And when we gave our lives to you, Jesus, you began to teach us that your vision for us is bigger than us individually, but it's about us as a community. It's about us as a family with you at the head. And this is an imperfect community. This is a community that's gonna require great mercy, great patience, great forgiveness. But we will all grow deeper because of it because to show great mercy, great forgiveness, great patience, we need to be filled by your supernatural love which you give freely. And so here we are, Jesus, as the church at Rocky Peak, as one of many local communities in your name, asking you, lead us, King Jesus. Teach us, show us how to love better. May we be known by how well we love one another. May that love turn into an invitation to the communities, to the families, to the individuals around us to say, come, Jesus invites you home as he invited us. And so as we sing this final song, which is a declaration of you being king, but in that declaration that you created new life in what you called the church. Let this be a time of celebrating that we are not orphaned, but we are joined together in this beautiful house because of you. And it's in your name, King Jesus, that we all said, amen.